Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and thanks for downloading the latest edition of the Political Party Podcast. This one featuring Alistair Campbell. Um... As you can imagine, I was more excited about this than I have been. Uh, I mean, it's on a par with Oasis getting back together and Frotch Groves too for me. So I was uh, very, very... Um, ju- uh, it's just amazing uh, to have someone like Alistair Campbell on there. You know, for, particularly for me, uh, I'm a new Labour guy. I'm a, very much a Blairite. Um, I grew up in an era, you know, I was 14 in 1997. So as I was getting into everything... In my life, you know, Campbell and Blair and people like Peter Mandelson were just these huge, towering figures uh, in the country at the time. Um, so to then sit face to face on a show like this and be able to ask Alistair Campbell any question I wanted, open the floor up to questions, was just a great night. He was on absolutely top form. And there are some, well, I'll warn you now, for the easily offended, um, there are some moments in there where the language uh, is sexual. Uh, and I'm not joking. The language is sexual um, due to some of his some of his um, earlier writings, and all will be revealed in the uh, interview section of the uh, show. And um, at the end, now make your mind up on um, what you think. But he gets asked a question at the end, towards the end, which he reacts to. Um, and I thought he was a little bit unfair, um, but I can understand where he's, I could understand both sides. But it was an absolutely belting show. And you see the difference, make your own mind, but you, you see the difference with different types of politicians and the way different people approach it. And you just get the sense with him immediately that this is elite level politics. And you can understand how he got as far as he got, why he's still in demand and why he was able to be such an influential and effective figure for the Labour Party. Uh, he's obviously a deeply controversial individual Um but he was on absolutely marvellous form. So enjoy the show. It was a real... I mean, all of the shows are a pleasure to do, but this one especially. Um, I hope you enjoy Good evening. Hello. Hello. Is this on? Hello. Good evening. Hey. Hey. What a night. This is very special indeed. Thank you very much. Uh, if you've been to the political party before, uh, give me a cheer. Hey. Hey. If you this is your first time, please give me a cheer. They sound nervous. <laughs> this is not a cult. It's absolutely fine. Welcome along. Uh, hello, I'm Matt Ford, on to the political party. Uh, on the night that I'm most excited about, I think it's fair to say, uh, of all the ones that we've had so far. So uh, please keep your mobile phones off. Uh, and, uh, well, during the second half, I'll explain the rules at the start of that. But uh, did everyone uh, enjoy the budget? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Spot the Tory table. One. Yes, absolutely yes. Yes. Been playing bingo all week. Uh, uh, this is Alan, our token Northern Tory. A round of applause for Alan, please. The, the legend. The legend. Do you it was a good, good budget overall, Alan? The, the penny off the, the, the booze, uh, which takes a glass of Rioja down to just six ninety nine now. It was well. The bingo tax was a, was a good call, wasn't it? I think that was widely uh, regarded as a positive thing. It was interesting seeing George Osborne go and play bingo, 
uh, presumably for the first time, in Cardiff. Uh, I don't know if anyone saw the footage, but him sat next to a working-class person. The fear in his eyes <laughs> was very much like the fear of when I've been left with a child and I don't want to look like a paedophile. That's sort of, oh, God, this could all go massively wrong. My intentions are good, but I could just, uh, you know, one word out of place and this is going nuclear. Just sat next to him going, hi, oh, yeah, hi, yeah, let's play some bingo. They sat there playing bingo, I don't know if you saw it, on one of those plastic ones. So it was quite a posh bingo hall. There were no dibbers. And uh, he, he's crossing off the things, just the little um, shutters. And he gets to the end, he's going, yeah, yeah, playing bingo, yeah, yeah, yeah. With this working class old lady. Gets to the end, he goes, oh, it's hard, isn't it? Oh, playing bingos. Like, mate, don't patronise her. <laughs> like, just tell the truth. She was going, oh, did you enjoy it? He goes, yeah, it was hard, though, wasn't it? Hey, keeping up with the numbers, all this sort of... Mate, I mean, I know he can't tell the truth. I can't go, was it hard? It was a piece of piss. What's the matter with you? I'm the Chancellor of the Exchequer. I have to be simple not to find bingo easy. Uh, he enjoyed himself. Ed Miliband, wow, he couldn't contain himself. I don't know if anyone saw the official budget response, but oh, my God. I'm a Labour supporter, right? Watching Ed Miliband on a big day like that breaks my heart. <laughs> it's like going into an FA Cup final with 11 injuries. Think, oh, for fuck's sake. We've got a big match. We've sent this bloke out. What on earth is going on? And I'll tell you what, when he gets an ad-lib, oh, he can't contain himself, can he? He had an ad-lib about there was a bit. If you didn't see it during the budget response, Michael Gove was sat by the speaker's chair on a little step, if you will. And halfway through, Miliband spies him and starts going, oh, oh, Mr. Speaker, I see the, I see the, no, 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 I see, no, 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 please, I see the education secretary's been sent to the naughty step. Yeah, I said that, yeah, I know. It's funny, wasn't it? All those kids in class, you just go, Miss, please, me, Miss, Miss, I know the answer, Miss, 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 please, 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 me, yeah, yeah. Naughty step. Nothing. All right, okay, fine. He could sort of tell that in his head he was thinking, I've just nailed that. Naughty step. The classic naughty step. I bet he thought all day in Parliament people were going to walk past him going, Hey, Ed! Loved the naughty step line. Absolutely loved it, old friend. Um, not only have we had the budget uh, this month, there have been some bizarre opinion polls out. There's one, obviously, that's given uh, the Labour leaders very narrow or, or non-existent. There was another one that came out. I don't know if you've seen that this week, uh, commissioned by YouGov, uh, that found that 39%, now let me get this right, 41% of people thought that Ed Miliband was weird or somewhat weird. <laughs> yeah, I know. What about the other 59%? <laughs> Were they asleep? It's, it's harsh, isn't it? But you just think, I mean, it, what I like is that there are grades of weird. Do you think it's weird? Not really. Somewhat weird, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely somewhat weird. 36% of people thought he was most likely to be bullied at school. <laughs> Who is commissioning these? How cruel are opinion polls getting? 5% thought he had the smallest dick. <laughs> Awful, innit? But the problem is, once you get to that point, 41% is a large. I mean, 41% would probably win you a general election. So if everyone who thinks you're weird is prepared to vote for you on that basis, turn it into a positive. Stop being really weird. Follow people home on the bus. <laughs> Beat off on trains. Go the full whole hog. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe that would be absolutely too far. But it does feel like there's a macho element to that that I didn't like, that it was a bit too nasty and a bit too sort of macho and, uh, you know, most likely to be bullied at school, most likely to be a nerd or stuff like this. We can't allow politics to get to that point where during the leaders' debates they go, OK, we've, had, we've heard your answers. Here's a ball. Throw it. 
You throw like a girl, mate. You going to vote for this? Weirdo. I think it's a bad idea. Uh, this is my favourite story of the month. Chris Grayling uh, wants to ban books being sent to prisoners. People annoyed by this? I mean, I, exactly. I don't, I don't know how many people in the room it personally affects. It's, it could be, uh, <laughs> could be quite a divisive question. What I love about the whole thing is that it just seems to such a bizarre argument to be getting into. And that's a, that's a problem I have with the coalition, if anything. It's just on a tactical basis. Some of the arguments they pick and choose seem to be bizarre. He said that prisoners aren't, new prisoners aren't allowed packages to be sent in. Um, and they include books. But you just think, what does he think people are doing with books in prison other than reading them? Has he seen Shawshank and thought, fuck me. <laughs> They're all keeping blades in there. They're all going to be tunnelling out. I think he's the only man who saw Porridge and thought it was a documentary. <laughs> saw an awful documentary in midweek about this guy called Norman Stanley Fletcher. Has anyone heard about him? He's got the authorities wrapped around his little finger. We're going to ban books and pineapple chunks. Um, but he wrote, he wrote an article on conservativehome.com, uh, a website. This is Chris Graham. This is a Secretary of State, the Lord Chancellor, Secretary of State for Justice. This is word for word his defence of this policy where you're not allowed to sell books, send books rather, to prisoners if you know them, right? This is how we start. This is a Secretary of State. This is a written... Th- I don't want to... <laughs> I just want to be absolutely clear. He didn't say this as a speech... He sat down and typed this and sent it in, right? This is how it starts. <laughs> so hands up. Who thinks we should make it easier to smuggle drugs into prison? <laughs> what? <laughs> or who thinks someone who threatens a prison officer and loses their privileges as a result should simply be able to phone home and get the things they're no longer allowed to buy in the prison shop sent in from home instead? Exactly. He's actually written that. He's actually looked round to see if anyone's put their hand up. It's a written piece, mate. You can't write it at the time and go, well, no one in the room objected, so I just presume the entire population. It's so partridge as well, isn't it? Exactly. No one in the room denied it. The country believes it. There we go. I wonder if anyone sat at home and just looked both ways and went, yeah, actually, I do agree with that. Just to prove him wrong. Um, here we go. Here's a bit. So when a left-wing pressure group launches an attack on us over books, you have to start by deleting the word books and inserting the word parcels. What if you send a book as a parcel? He doesn't address that issue. (laughs) This is one of our favourite bits. Some things have gone all together, like 18 certificate DVDs and Sky Sports. So presumably if you're on the VHS, it's fine, and uh, BT Sport is now allowed. Uh, ESPN Classic, if it's retro sport, it can't incite violence, apparently. Um, but 18 certificates, not 15. What if they're young offenders? 12A? I don't think he's really, I don't think he's really thought this through. Uh, the penalties for bad behaviour are tougher too, he says. You lose the right to wear your own clothes. Just presiding over a PE session at school. You lose your privileges, vest and pants, mate. Whatever's in that bin, wear it. Now, this is where it gets... This is the bit that isn't just great, it's peculiar. <laughs> First, the books issue. Right? That, it sounds like you're saying right the whole time, right? Yeah? You can keep up to 12 books in your cell at any one time, right? All prisoners access well-stocked prison libraries. The biggest debate I've had over prison libraries so far is whether they should stock 50 Shades of Grey. 
I decided they could. (laughs) If it encourages women prisoners to read, that can only be a good thing. Great, you dirty old bastard. Can only be a good thing. Teach him a couple of moves. I never said anything about 18th certificate books. <laughs> it wouldn't be prison if you didn't have a few girls telling a few tricks, would it, boys? Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, if that wasn't the pierce de resistance, some of the comments underneath this on Conservative are magnificent. Resident lefty. Uh, <laughs> writes, you don't understand that by banning parcels you are in fact banning books the fact you're also banning children's handmade birthday cards and clean underwear is just the acrid icing on the urinal cake <laughs> which have also been banned uh, this where, oh my god Robert again this is his name he says why are some media and some liberal left wing politicians so concerned about criminals in prison they should cons- they should consider giving and sending books to the victims of crime. Yeah, sorry about your son getting killed. There's Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Perk yourself up, won't it? <laughs> One here is Tony at 59123, which means there must have been 5,900 another 22 people who had that idea before him. Uh, starts with, his post starts, grayling. <laughs> He's not happy, is he? Grayling. You really are the worst kind of politician. Arrogant, clueless, ignorant. You're at your depth at the MOJ. My goldfish and his seven-second memory possesses more knowledge and understanding about the legal system than you. Do the country a favour. Resign. Find a cave. Live in that cave for the rest of eternity. (laughs) I mean, imagine if he took that advice. The Justice Secretary was found today dead in a cave that he intended to live in for all eternity. <laughs> then this one, Chairman Davy. This is a classic internet comment. This is a great article, but why can't Conservative Home get the formatting right on posts? <laughs> Guess I agree with the death penalty, but I can't turn my caps lock off. Look, we get sense of perspective here. Oh my God! Uh, tonight is a, a night of a great showdown, of course, on Sky News and LBC tonight. The uh, Clegg versus Farage. Just by means of a cheer, who's backing Nick Clegg in that bout? Who's backing Nigel Farage? Just us three, I reckon. Um, I mean, I I get excited about it. I'm going to the Frotch Groves fight at Wembley, right? I think it's sort of similar to that. It's the political... Two people have offered each other out. I think it's brilliant. But I think... I wish the build-up would have been a bit more... A bit more like a boxing match. Get them to do that face-to-face thing at the (laughs) weigh-in. They sort of have to do the photos like that, and then they have to turn and sort of touch faces like that. (laughs) Farage would be better at that element of it, wouldn't he? He'd be much better. I called you a pussy. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) Carry on. No, no, no. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to break his will, then I'm going to break his legs, and he can stick to breaking promises. I went there. I went there. I went there. I went there. He'd be so good at it. I hope for right. I mean, the problem is, is I'm pro-European, but I want Clegg to lose. It's like the AV referendum. <laughs> I should have voted for AV, but I hated Nick Clegg so much, I voted against my own ideas. <laughs> Nick Clegg's the most powerful political force in the country. Whatever he says he doesn't want to do, I'll vote for. <laughs> that is quite bad, actually, isn't it? I've realised I sound like an absolute uh, critter. Um, oh, I wish they would have done it in boxing shorts as well, like the full thing. The full gamut. Turn up in boxing shorts with gloves on. 
Clegg, I imagine if it's underwear, do you reckon Clegg, Y fronts? Y front wearer. I reckon Farage go commando. <laughs> Got my cock out, deal with it. The saddest thing, right, the saddest thing about the Clegg Farage showdown, which I think most people in politics are actually quite excited by. It's something a little bit different. It might turn out to be an anti-climax, but, you know, it's, it's different. It's two middleweights, but it still could be a great bout. Um, this is, the worst thing about it is the Labour Party response to it, because they obviously feel a little bit left out, and they can't go, we're all going to have a house party and watch it. It's going to be great, isn't it? Um, he's already shit-faced. Um, they have to sort of be all serious about it. And this is one thing that really annoys me about Labour at the moment. They always sound like they're talking to you like that. <laughs> like Yvette Cooper. <laughs> oh, someone went, oh. <laughs> this is a lightweight battle between two men who will never be Prime Minister. This is an official Labour Party press release. It's only happening because Nick Clegg needs Nigel Farage and Nigel Farage needs Nick Clegg, but the country doesn't need either of them. While the Tories, the Lib Dems and UKIP obsess about Europe, Labour will continue to prioritise the cost of living crisis and get the economy back on track. So, oh my God, we're the only people taking this seriously actually. What, you're going to be at home working on the cost of living crisis at 9pm? Get a pizza in mate, chill out. If David Cameron wants to let his kids have sugary cereals, then David Cameron can do that, but I actually don't think it's very responsible. My kids eat gravel like every good Guardian reader knows is actually better for you, so... If the Labour Party was currently my parent, I would smoke to piss it off. <laughs> Farage has also got himself in a lot of trouble this month because apparently he's been having an affair. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, um, but every, I think everyone's heard rumours and could probably assume that Farage might be a little bit of a, a ladies' man, perhaps. Um, just to ladies in the audience, do any of you find Nigel Farage sexually attractive? No. Okay. Does anyone find Nigel Farage sexually attractive? See, the thing is with Farage is... Yeah. <laughs> Just pull nuts all at the back. Yeah, I do, yeah. Um, he has got himself into a bit of trouble, and he was backed up by Godfrey Bloom. Uh, <laughs> I don't even saw Godfrey Bloom say He said, oh, it's not a problem. Everyone knows Nigel likes a bit of crumpet. Youcom <laughs> is the only party where if you slag off your colleagues, you're actually helping them out. I saw you slag me off in the Daily Mail today. Cheers to that, mate. Give me a five-point bounce. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, I, think, I, I quite like Farage. I would never vote for him. Um, but I like the sort of humour that he brings to things. And I like his sort of personality. So in my head, I think, you know what? I would actually f maybe fancy Farage if I was a woman. But then I imagine Farage. And I can't imagine Farage doing anything. Well, he doesn't talk like that. I'm going to undress you. <laughs> then I'm going to penetrate you. You're going to have multiple orgasms because, quite frankly, it's what you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> now he fancies Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> but Clegg is the opposite end of me. Clegg I don't have any time for. I don't like the way he speaks. I don't like the way Nick Clegg talks in the way that he, like he's reading an auto-cue even when he isn't. <laughs> Just someone needs to sort of kick-start him and then he'll talk normally again. I don't like the sort of fake way that he speaks. It annoys me quite apart from his policies and his shit jokes. You know, the Tory party's a bit like a chopping trolley. You try and push it forward, but it veers off to the right. Meh. <laughs> Great joke, Nick. By the way, mate, if the Tory party is a shopping trolley, you're the fucking idiot sat in the baby seat, so don't you start quacking. A-hole. Oh.
And I don't know how tonight's going to go for Arge Clegg. Uh, and I've Sky Plus set. I can't wait to watch it when I get in. But I think on style, Farage will probably win. Clegg might sort of edge it on the detail, but w- it remains to be seen. Um, but the reason why I have that sort of uh, opinion, both oh, for pro-European reasons, I'm, I'm pro-European. I'd like Clegg actually to sort of be a standard bearer for the European cause if he's capable of doing it. But there's something about the way he behaves and the way that he holds himself that actually goes to the heart, I think, of a lot of people and why they are currently disaffected with politics and why Nigel Farage sort of appeals to certain sections of people that perhaps might not have voted before. Um, and to demonstrate this point, that obviously what you say matters, but the way you say it uh, matters a fair bit, I'd like to read aloud Asnick Clegg uh, from one of my favourite books. Uh, it's The House at Pooh Corner by A.A. A. Milne. Um, <laughs> now, I've chosen a, a special passage uh, from here. Um, but I'll tell you now, I'll read it in three different styles to demonstrate the point. First, I'll read it as Nick Clegg. Then I'll read it in my favourite oratorical style, which is uh, of Tony Blair. Uh, <laughs> that smokes a few out already. Uh, and then I'll read it out uh, as a generic Northern Union rep, which is another oratorical style that I, uh, I love. So I'll read it first as Nick Clegg. Watch in amazement as these words literally fail to leap off the page. <laughs> As it happened, it was Rabbit who saw Piglet first. Piglet had gone up early that morning to pick himself a bunch of violets, and when he picked them and put them in a pot in the middle of his house, it suddenly came over him that no one had ever picked here a bunch of violets, and the more he thought about this, the more he thought how sad it was to be an animal who never had a bunch of violets picked for him. Stiff. Shit. (laughs) Clegg. Now, <laughs> Tony Blair. Blair's oratorical style was this. Not that. <laughs> Blair's oratorical style was this. Talk about the big stuff. And then make it personal. Ooh. <laughs> Mrs. Lover Lover. In Blair's hands, this is just dynamite. As it happened... It was Rabbit who saw Piglet first. (laughs) Piglet had got up early that morning to pick himself a bunch of violets. (laughs) And when he picked them, you know, put them in a pot in the middle of his house, it suddenly came over him. No one had ever picked you a bunch of violets. And the more he thought about it, the more he thought how sad it was to be an animal who never had a bunch of violets picked for him. Oh. Oh. <laughs> so <Tony. laughs> oh. can feel the mood of the room. That you know, the mood of the room is effectively Tony Dirac War is forgiven. Um, <laughs> No, just pop round in the evening and read us a few fairy stories. <laughs> now, the generic Northern Union rep. Uh, all you need to know about this person is that they don't pause for breath, they're Northern, and whatever it is they're talking about, there is a deep injustice at the heart of it. <laughs> As it happened, it was Robin who saw Piglet first. Piglet got up early that morning to pick himself a bunch of violets. When he picked them and put them in a pot in the middle of his house, it suddenly came over him. No one had ever picked it or a bunch of violets. And the more he thought about it, the more he thought how sad it was to be an animal who never had a bunch of violets picked for him. (laughs) 
Thank you. Oh, knackered. Um, ladies and gentlemen, well, that brings us to the halfway point, so uh, please go to the bar, refresh yourselves. Think of questions you would like to ask Alistair Campbell in the second half. Already, you've been a phenomenal crowd. I'll be Matt Ford. I'll see you in a few minutes. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, hello. Welcome back. Is this on? Is that okay? Can everyone hear me? Audible, lovely. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming down tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, over the past year or so, I've tried to diversify as much as possible with the guests uh, with different uh, political persuasions. Uh, we've had a few Conservatives, one Lib Dem, uh, and quite a few Labour. And uh, from now on until summer, uh, there are no more Labour guests. So we've got a few Tories, especially for you, Alan. <laughs> and, uh, and a few others that will announce at the end of the show. Uh, tonight's guest uh, is, I think it's fair to say, by far the biggest political figure that we've had down uh, here. It's taken me about a year to convince him uh, to come down and do this gig. <laughs> He's finally here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. And I would ask as well, as I always do, uh, for respect uh, in the second half. You know, if you disagree with something else to say, by all means, put your hand up during the section where we uh, ask questions. But please, uh, you know, we pride ourselves here on having a you know, respectful gig, even when we uh, disagree with people. Um, Without further ado, I mean, please welcome Alistair Campbell. I might move these forward, actually. It feels a bit... Okay. Sort, of, sort of hiding at the back of the stage. Well, there, okay, can. yeah, there all right. Go. So, um... Oh, his jokes are on there. Don't tell them about that. Oh. <laughs> That's private. Right, so, um... <laughs> Alistair, you're... you're you're, I mean, some people would say, is this your second work of fiction? <laughs> <laughs> or third, including the... It's my <laughs> third novel. Third novel, fourth piece of fiction. Um, <laughs> uh, it's called My Name Is, uh, and it deals with uh, the sort of ravages of drink, really. Uh, and I read this... Um, I would have read it anyway. Yeah. Um, and really enjoyed it. And it, it's a novel that, for those of you that haven't read it, uh, the format of it is a story of a woman's life called Hannah, and each chapter is told from the perspective of a different person that's had an effect on her life. So it's, you've effectively had to come up with about 20 different characters in the first place. 26, I think. 26 different characters. Um, but it deals in, in quite in a lot of detail with the problems with drink, and it's something that you yourself have struggled with and been very open about in the past. How much of this book leans on personal experience? Um, quite a lot, I'd say. I mean, I, it's really odd... That I ended up writing as a teenage girl. That is quite odd. <laughs> um, I've never, ever been a teenage girl, ever. Um, and I don't quite know why I did that, but I'll tell you where the kind of... I've been trying to write a, no a novel. I've written two novels before, one about psychiatry and one about what I call the pathology of celebrity, which one day you may know about, Matt. Um, <coughs> I might meet one. <laughs> <laughs> So, I wanted to write a novel about alcoholism, because what I found with the first novel, which is about, it's about a psychiatrist who goes off the rails, and, and I was amazed at how much traction it got in the mental health debate, kind of more than politicians are, and I think that cultural space is really, really interesting. And so, with this, so I wanted to write a book about alcoholism, and I just couldn't get to grips with it. And I, I started out, here's an idea for some people who write a novel, uh, I started out with this idea of you start at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and then you 
you go backwards into their lives and then you come back into how they all came to be there and then you that's how it started and I just couldn't crack it it was one of those things I just couldn't do and then so I, so I parked it and then about uh, a year later six months later I, I was doing a documentary for the BBC about alcoholism and I met this doctor who is very very well known liver specialist from Southampton General Hospital Nick Sherrod and he said the most extraordinary thing is happening when I started my career my liver disease patients were nine to one men to women. It's now 50-50, and the women are getting younger and the men are getting older. I thought, wow, that is really interesting. And one of my characters in this novel that I couldn't write was Hannah. And I just I started it that night, and I wrote it in nine days. It just... What's... I mean, <coughs> I don't want to sound disrespectful, but I was surprised at how good it was. Oh, yeah. Because... Well, be just because... <laughs> <laughs> but just, but just because, <laughs> just because, I was surprised how bad your impersonation of Nigel Farage was. Oh come on! <laughs> and as for your Ed oh, Miliband, oh come on! As, as for your Ed Miliband, oh that Ed Miliband, that is dangerously good. <laughs> and they're, they're my words. <laughs> come on, more. You must have met him. You must have met him. Let's recreate. When was the last time you spoke to him? Uh, day before the budget. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, um, what did he say? Eh? What did he say? You have to wait till volume eleven. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, uh, uh, "Alistair, come on, uh, look, uh, look, the budget's tomorrow, as you know." Uh, <laughs> look, I, 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 I just want, I just want. <laughs> I just want a bit of advice on how to attack uh, the Tories. Uh, uh, can you help me out? <laughs> he didn't listen. <laughs> what was it you said to him again? <laughs> but does he, does he ring you for advice often? I talk to him a fair bit. I talk to him all. I mean, you know, he lives around the corner. Um, I'm very, very, like you, I mean, you're making a living, in a, you know, taking the piss out of them now, which is fair enough. <laughs> but I'm, like you, basically loyal to the Labour Party, and I want them to win. I hate this government. Uh, I really want Labour to win, and so I'll help them. But, you know, I'm not... You, you've got to... They talk a lot about... They talk about like, learning the lessons. They've also got to learn the lessons about why we won. So... And just in case Ed's listening... Um, <laughs> 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 what, do you think, what do you think the lessons are? <coughs> well, I think that if you go back, um, I find I'm writing a book at the moment. <laughs> I, I go fiction, non-fiction. Okay. And I'm doing a book about winning and the psychology of winning in sport and politics and business. With Charlie Sheen. <laughs> Not with Charlie Sheen. Well, listen, he'd be welcome. He'd be in very good company, I can tell him that. Um, but the when you say we've got to do... You've, you've really, 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 really got to want to win. And that is a mindset. And the mindset has to... You have to live it 24 hours a day. You have to dream about it. You have to wait, think about it when you wake up. You have to panic yourself into worrying about losing. And, that, and that's what makes you do the things you need to do to win. It's exactly the same in sport. It's exactly the same in politics. And what I worry about at the moment is that both the Tories and Labour sort of think that there's a kind of conventional wisdom developing that 
probably going to be another coalition. Mm. And that, I think, is dictating how they operate. And I think you, it's funny, I actually don't dislike Clegg as much as you do. Um, I think that, uh, that if you look at the way Labour and the Liberal Democrats are getting on, now, I don't mind Clegg, but, no, I don't, but you've got to, you've got to, the Labour Party should be absolutely ripping them to bits at the moment. Yeah. Even if they end up having to be empowered them. And I think the other thing is that you've got to... I know you, <coughs> you know, where you're coming from politically, as it were, and I, I know you, you agree with this because we've talked about it before. But the thing about... When, I thought when Margaret Thatcher died, the Tories are very, very, very good at using their past. Mm. Now, Cameron actually distanced himself from Thatcher with his no such thing as society, there is such a thing as society, big society, R.I.P., uh, but when she when she was RIP, he was quickly into this. You know, this is how we use history. We've had this rather extraordinary situation where Labour's most successful ever leader. It's like, well, how do we distance ourselves from that? And the worst thing in terms of strategy on this, because the other thing about how you win, you've got to have a really clear hard, thought-through strategy that you can communicate every minute of every day. And our strategy was New Labour. And the thing is that what was one of our biggest achievements politically was the fact that we, having had a record of Labour not being trusted on the economy, we became trusted in the economy. Now, it ended badly because of the crash. But because during the leadership election, there was the Tories basically, while we were electing a new leader... The Tories were just out every day, every day. We've inherited a mess, we've inherited a mess, we've inherited a mess, the mess we inherited, the mess we inherited, mess, 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 economy disaster, blah, 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 all Labour's fault, again and again and again, and we've never rebutted it. Mm. And you had 10 years of growth and prosperity under a Labour government, and it's gone. Now, my view, and this is something I have said to Ed, and I've also said it publicly, so I'll say it again, it's never too late to get to the right position. The right position is to say... Under Labour, you had a government that was commit, committed to stability, committed to investment in public services, good record on jobs, good record investment. It ended badly because of... What are you shaking your head at? <laughs> <laughs> You're not allowed to answer. <laughs> it ended badly. It ended badly. That's Alan. He's nice. Is that Alan Wicker? <laughs> if it was Alan Wicker I'd let him answer but <laughs> so it was it ended badly because of the international financial yeah. crisis this is the only country I go, I go around the world a lot right yeah this is the only country in the world where the politics has defined itself in such a way that the government who was in power at the time is getting all the blame for what happened on the global economy. It's the only country in the world. Now, we've allowed oh, that to happen. Well, there are various incumbents that Oh, lost no, the lots of incumbents have gone. I accept that. I accept that. No, but my point is, if you go to... Uh, Barack Obama is not single-handedly being held responsible for the financial under crisis. Bush. No, I know, but Barack Obama was in power when he was putting it all together. And then, if you go around all of these countries, I accept that some of them have gone. Yeah. But in terms of how the politics have played out, this is the only one where the party that was in government at that time has it, had this blame pinned on it. Now, that happened because the Tories were strategic about it, and we didn't rebut it. Isn't there also a, an element <coughs> of truth, though, actually, that 
the single-minded deregulation of the city, which was central to the sort mm -hmm. of Blair Brown economic offer, mm -hmm. allowed us to be overexposed to the subprime market when it collapsed. So Labour has to take some responsibility. Yeah, I'm not saying you, I'm not, I, I, I accept that up to a point. The point at which I divert from that, and this is why we've got to be really, really careful not to lapse into this, not allow the Tories to set their next trap, which is Labour's anti-business. That's the next trap that mm. they want us to fall into. Now, Ed is right to do what he's doing in energy prices, is right to push back on the, living, the standards of living thing which you were taking the piss out of. He's right to do that. <coughs> but, but... It's just getting through the standard of living... Yes, it is. Cost I'll of living crisis. I'll tell you why I know it's getting through, because when you did it in that Ed Miliband voice, they all laughed. That's why I knew it's going through. If you, you, you were doing it in a way of... It was your response to the Farage... Uh, why he's doing his debate with Clegg, yeah. and you read that press release out, and they all went, they groan. Why did they groan? Because they're fed up hearing about the living standards. And what I say to anybody in communication, when the communicator is getting fed up of saying the same thing, that's the point at which it's just reaching the outer. I get that. I get. Radar. The, I get the sort of principle of repetition. But in terms of the public believing that there is a cost <coughs> of living crisis, in terms of believing that Ed Miliband is the right man to sort it out, do you think it's getting through in that way? Well, they're two separate questions. Is, it, is there a cost of living crisis? For millions of people, there is. There really is. The, then the question about, Ed, is Ed Miliband the right person to, to deal with that? That's a separate question. My answer is yes, because the choice is him or Cameron. And Cameron so doesn't get people and how they live their lives. He doesn't get it. They don't get... I, I mean, you know, you can overdo the whole sort of class thing, but I think there is a bit of an element of the background that they all sort of come from. They don't really understand. I, d I took a load of, to be fair to Cameron and to Andy Coulson, when I, d I did that TV programme with Jamie um, Oliver, chef. Yeah, Jamie Oliver, yeah. Yeah, Jamie Oliver, sorry. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. Has, yeah, I get them all mixed up. They all look the same. Um, Jamie's Dream School. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. and I was teaching these kids who'd been through, um, and it was a TV thing, but it was very, very interesting. And so they got... 20 kids who I think had got one O-level between them and all come from really rough backgrounds. And How old were they? They were, they were, teen, they were 18. O-levels? <laughs> come on, mate. Fuck's sake. <laughs> come on. You know, when he, when he does the podcast, he's only going to use the bits that he... Oh, no, this will remain unedited. Yeah, blah. So Unedited and available online. Um... <laughs> To be used by whoever uh, yeah. in any future documents. So, um, in the... In the <laughs> I, I asked number 10 if I could take these kids in to see Cameron. Because I was teaching them about politics. Okay. And to be fair, when you got them... When I showed them, like, a Martin Luther King speech or a Churchill war broadcast or told them the story of Abraham Lincoln or showed them Mandela speaking, whatever, they just were absolutely silent. And they just watched it and they were mesmerised. They'd never had that experience before. And so actually, some of them started to get interesting. Two of them have got really involved in politics. Excellent. One of them's in EastEnders, uh, Danielle, the blonde girl. Um, so, took them in to see Cameron. Now, fair play to him, he didn't have to do it. It was no skin off my nose if he said no, because I know what it's like. You'll get thousands of requests like that. Mm. He did it. What was interesting, though, is that when we came out, so we had an hour with them, an hour with him, and the, the kids were impressed by being in Down Street. Stuff. Got back out, I, I, I talked to every single one of them. And they all said roughly the same thing. He doesn't understand my life at all. And I think there's a, a lot in that. And I think, I, and I think, so I think that I 
do believe that this government is like just but is that genuinely out of touch and doesn't understand what these people's lives are like. But is that doesn't about understand what it Tony means. Blair was privately educated at Fettis, which mm-hmm. is you know the Eton of of the North. Mm-hmm. He went. He had an Oxbridge education mm-hmm. on top of that, so he came from a very privileged yeah, background. Yeah. He'd never known struggle really, apart from in uh, in terms of losing family members. And David Cameron's had uh, more than enough experience of that. Yeah. So what's the difference then between Blair and Cameron, who've had both very privileged upbringings? It can't just be about background. No, I think it's uh, I think it's when you look at them as it were as a tribe. When you looked at our tribe, yes, there was Tony, he was the Prime Minister. I was there. John Prescott was there. Gordon Brown was there. Uh, David Blunkett was there. You mentioned Charles Clark. Yeah, Tessa Jarl was there. Claire Short was there. Alas. Um, <laughs> so so you, had, you, had a, you had a much broader yeah. range of people, and I think a lot of, a lot of whom, their lives were rooted in communities that these guys just are honestly think see as foreign countries. It's like when Ian Duncan Smith went up to Glasgow and discovered council estates with poverty. And it was like a revelation to him. And I thought, you know, where, where have you been? But there are plenty of Labour MPs. I mean, I've, I've watched that Tower Block of Commons, as I'm sure many people did. Austin Mitchell was dreadful on it, and he's working class. It can't always be no, about background. I'm not background. saying it's all about background. I'm simply saying, if you're getting most of your top-flight politicians from the same cloth, I think there's a problem. I mean, look at the way they talk about women and the way they sort of... Even the women, the way they talk about women. I was at this thing yesterday. I didn't realise the sports minister is a woman had said this thing about oh women, yeah, women yeah. ought to wear sparkly shorts to make themselves look a bit more attractive. I was with these coaches last night. I was with these UK sport coaches. They couldn't believe that the sports minister had said that. Now, how do, what happens in your brain, or what happens in your life that you have a brain that thinks that that can come out of your mouth? <laughs> I don't get it. Well, <laughs> Let's not go into that. <laughs> you have, I mean, I'm, I'm wary. I mean, well, it's up to you how you choose to come across, but you must have friends in the Conservative Party you get on with. Yeah. Who? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, bizarrely, uh, I mean, you've plugged the novel, thank you. You haven't plugged the diaries. Um, I was very, very friendly with Alan Clark. Very friendly. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher would have seen it as dangerously friendly, and she was absolutely right. Because Alan Clark was just a fan... I was a journalist then. He was a fantastic gossip. He was an unbelievable gossip. He came to... He once... And he, he used to come around our house for dinner. He once gave me a Bentley. <laughs> what, forever? <laughs> I did... I c- because of my sort of, you know... I couldn't take it, right? What was that? But, uh, chip. Oh, chip. Yeah. yeah, so I couldn't... I wouldn't be seen dead. Well, I, if I was dead, I wouldn't have any choice. But I wouldn't <laughs> drive a Bentley. Right? So he came to our house for dinner, Right? And I'll never forget it because uh, we, we live in a... It's a nice house in a nice street, but it's quite narrow, right? Yeah. Here, and, it's, and it's got parking restrictions. Well, down at Saltwood Castle in Kent, where we usually had dinner, they don't have parking. <laughs> so he arrives in his Bentley, purple Bentley. He pulls it up in the middle between the two lines of cars and just leaves it in the middle <laughs> of the road, right? <laughs> and, so he, come, he, he rings the bell, comes in, sort of looks around what to him would be a very pokey little house, and then I look out and say, what are you, what are you going to do with the car? And he, so he throws me the keys. <laughs> I'm a fucking valet or something. <laughs> anyway, he then, he then we, we had... So Fiona, um, at the risk of stereo, sexual stereotyping, Fiona's in the kitchen, 
and she, bring, she brings food through, right? And he starts to eat this starter. And then he says, mm, this is nice, what is it? And Fiona describes it. And then she, she mentions the word crab. At which point he throws up over the table. <laughs> I says, oh, I'm allergic, I'm allergic, I'm allergic. Goes out, runs out to the gardens, vomiting loudly. And all that Nothing coming out. It's all a sort of big act. He was wearing these incredible sort of jodhpurs. <laughs> and, and, one, and one of those, you know those jackets that Tories wear that you never see in shops? <laughs> so what I mean? Oh, I love them. I really want a jacket like that. You, that you never, you can't buy sort them. Of thick. Yeah. Like boats. Really big stripes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they go with those sorts of shoes. So... <laughs> <laughs> I like Tory clothes, man. Yeah. They look cool. When I, when, when I took Fiona down to Saltwood for the first time, I'd been there a few times, and he was in the... Ma- so I said to him, look, Alan, you and I always have a good laugh, right? But I'm a bit of a lefty, and you're a kind of, you know, neo-fascist. Um, <coughs> and, uh, and, and I can live with it, because we have a good time together, yeah. and we, you know, we look at women and stuff and talk. And blah. So what? What's what sort? Of, how would those so then I said, wait a minute. So then I said, so then I said, I said, Fiona is, she's not PC, right? But she's not got that kind of. She'll find you a bit shocking. So don't, please don't overdo it. Okay, that's what I said. So we arrive, we arrive in our humble car, <coughs> get out, go and see him. He's ah, oh, Fiona, come on, come on, come on, come on. I want to show you my prized possession. We go up to this room. We go up to a room. There's a sword on the wall. He gets one of these sort of things that you take swords off the wall with. (laughs) (laughs) He pulls it down. He holds it like that. He said, personal gift from General Pinochet. (laughs) Fucking hell. Holy shit. (laughs) Is that why he wasn't extradited? (laughs) (laughs) Fucking hell. Um... I was just to him, <laughs> Nick Soames, I'm friendly with. Soames, who was uh, right, very so supportive. David Davis. Very- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A good friend. Um, I was going to just ask you what, a couple more things about the book. You talk about sort of Alan Clark and looking at women there. There's a lot of sexual language in this book. Is there? Yeah. The word fanny at least three times. No. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, yeah. Absolutely I kept not. a fanny count. Um, <laughs> in what context? As I often do. Well, in the context of this book. Um, I, it was, I was a well, there's, te- there's teenage sex in it. I know, but did you, did, at any point when you were writing this, did you think, I'm going to come to a cop with that in a book? No. My, my, my daughter, who's 19, 
she was my she read it every chapter as I went. Yeah. She, and she was really helpful on sort of like youth language and how kids speak to I each other. I thought it was very realistic. Stuff like that. <laughs> um, and don't forget, my first debut in writing was what we call pornography. Well, so yes, it was. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. I was going to quote. It, I was going to quote a few things back to you. This is. I don't know if anyone's read this. Peter Oborn's oh, uh, biography of, uh, of Alistair Campbell. Um, I have this read year. It's no I reason why they like should. Fifteen years. Um, you went for a magazine called Forum, is that right? That's right. Where you went under the pseudonym of the Riviera Gigolo. <laughs> <laughs> this is, is that right? No, it's not. I went under my own name. <laughs> I, went, I, I, <laughs> I went under my own name, but Forum called me the Riviera Gigolo. Okay, okay. Right? So, um, God, don't, please don't. <laughs> my mum, my mum will listen. My mum's got with the program and Twitter and all that. She'll be listen, She'll listen to the podcast. Well, yeah, but uh, she's read your books, hasn't she? She hasn't read that. Okay, well, she hasn't read Forum. Let me let me give her the audio book debut. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Campbell, thank you for tuning in. Um, this is what your son got up to when he told you he was studying. Um, <laughs> here we go, right. Um, Campbell describes how Madame Renardo, quote, a 40-year-old attractive Mediterranean type, meets him at her reception and invites him to dinner. Quote, an offer I accepted with pleasure, for my interest in older women was a lively one. <laughs> Were you the first milf on her? This is a <laughs> And in any case, I was still finding my feet in a strange country. We were halfway through a bowl of marinated mussel. <laughs> and it became transparent that Madame Renardo had more than purely personal oh, interest in it. shut up, you're awful. It goes on, there's more, there's more. Campbell describes how he comes to perform stud duties <laughs> for a wide circle of women, the majority of whom were rich, beautiful and in love with sex. <laughs> One such woman paid him a thousand francs, more than a week's salary at his school, and and if you're easily shocked, cover your ears. Mrs. Campbell, um, I I wouldn't cover my ears if I tell you, um, held my testicles firmly from behind, a slight pain preventing ejaculation, then let go as her orgasm approached. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I'll tell you what though. but that you is, did write that. Yeah. But that, is, <laughs> that is moderately embarrassing. However, what was more embarrassing <laughs> was one of your fellow comedians, Mark Thomas. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> He's proper funny, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. He, he did a programme where he hired an ad van. This is when we were in number 10. Yeah. He hired an ad van, and on the ad van... He put words from my articles <laughs> and drove it around Westminster, <laughs> stopping people, asking them to read it, then telling them that I wrote it. And he then tried to bring the Advan up Downing Street. <laughs> that was embarrassing. I mean, do you... Uh, Oborn sort of suggested that it was part based on personal experience. Was it all fiction, or was, were you actually genuinely getting up to that sort of stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was living in France. <laughs> yeah. On my own. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, go on, go on, go on, go on, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not bothered, but yeah, go, carry on. <laughs> uh, 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 it was, it was, without doubt, one of the best years of my life. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, we, 
It's a Cloak Farage thing that's going on tonight. Um, yeah. I'm amazed you're not there. Well, I've got to do this, haven't I? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think it's an exciting new... Do you think this will be the future of political debate where people have individual debates just two on two rather than going through question time or the commons? This is sort of like a new front in political debate? Well, it might be, but I think, <coughs> it might be, but I think we've got to be very, very careful about it. Um, I was always very ambivalent about the TV debates because I think that... I mean, I, one of the things I'm writing in this book at the moment on the winning thing is actually, I think, on the kind of really big stuff, geopolitics and strategy and stuff. I think the non-democracies are winning against the democracies. I was in the Gulf the other week, and I was talking to this kind of Emirati high up, and, he's, and I said, you know, are you doing much in Britain at the moment? He said, no, no, China and Russia is where we are at the moment. China and Russia, that's where it's at. I said, um, why is that? He said, well, the trouble with Britain, he says, <coughs> your processes are so slow and your media is too hard. Now, the processes are about democracy. The media, in part, is about democracy. And they're basically saying, you go to China and you want business done, you do business. You go to Russia and you need to pay somebody a backhander, you pay the backhander. And, you know, I'm not suggesting we do that, but I am suggesting that we're operating at disadvantage. You take a third runway, right? Now, whether it's right or it's wrong, anybody who goes to an airport in Britain these days knows we have a problem with airport capacity. Yeah. The first time we had a discussion about the third runway was 1998. How many airports have the Chinese built since then? Now... So the p my point about this thing about Parliament, if I think there's a slight danger that we're sort of saying to ourselves, well, we've got these institutions and they've lasted so long and therefore democracy will win through. I don't think you can take it for granted anymore. And I'll tell you the other thing that really worries me about this whole kind of personality stuff. And <coughs> look, I know you care about politics and you think about politics and what have you, but even you, when you're sort of saying, oh, I couldn't vote for Farage, but I like him, I think he's funny. And you meet so many people say, Boris, I like, I, yeah. you know, he's a bit of a knobhead, but I really, he makes me laugh and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if we're not careful, you've got a, an ever narrowing pool of people going into politics, people who they don't want to get the opprobrium, they don't want to get the scrutiny. Everybody who's in their 20s, 30s, 40s now has done stuff. I mean, you know, that was my, you read that <laughs> some of mine, but everybody's done stuff that they wouldn't want to see on the front page of a newspaper. So that's narrowing the pool. Then you've got the whole kind of, you know, the youthification of leadership, mm. which I think will go back, by the way. I hope so. Because I think, I, think I think the idea we've got three main party leaders all in their 40s, you know, Ken Clark is almost like a kind of, the only one who's of that sort of older generation that's still kind of hanging around. I think that's a problem. So I think it's a part of it. The reason why I was always ambivalent about the TV debates is because I've, I've, one of my critiques of the modern media is they're utterly obsessed with themselves. And if you put the debates at the heart of the election campaign, that's all you hear about. And actually, do you get that much? Do you really get that much from sort of two guys going at each other in a very strictly organised format? It, the, the, the main problem, there was, there was terrible television, the three TV debates. They were very boring, weren't they? They weren't exciting. Yeah, but it shouldn't have been... Why, what does that mean when you say they're boring? They, they, these well, because were the, they were, the rules were so set that they couldn't interrupt each other. They couldn't really go at each other. They just had to yeah, do I it agree with a that. sort of school hall debate. <coughs> where yeah, that was was very, yeah, I agree with that. I, look, wh who, are the, who are the politicians? I was talking to my missus about this this morning while we were talking about... This, this whole business about... She, she'd been at a conference at the weekend and people were saying, you know... They were talking about Tony Benn. And, now I, look, politically, Tony Benn and I were on very different sides of the Labour Party. Uh, but I was actually very friendly with him. I'm going to his funeral tomorrow, very friendly with his family, because I did have that respect for... Particularly for his use of language. And so much of politics is about use of language. But if I think back to when I was a journalist, you know, 
when the, when it, on the Commons Annunciator, you know, when it comes up who's speaking, there used to be 50 or 60 people who, if their name come up, you went in. If Michael Heseltine's name came mm. up, if Norman Tebbett's name came up, if Gerald Corkman's name came up, you know, if Michael Foote, Tony Benn, if these name it was worth going in to hear them. Now, and the media, you see, I was on the Daily Mirror. We had two journalists whose sole job was to cover parliamentary debates. Now, even the broadsheets don't cover parliament. They just have these sneery little sketches, you know, and no, 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 no. But, both, but one's effect, they're, they're, they're both stuck in a relationship where one is doing that to the other, aren't they? There's a reason yeah. why they're writing sneery sketches, because is it fair to say the standard, certainly political leaders, is lower than it was even in my lifetime? And in general, parliamentary debate is more sort of anodyne than it was when you don't have those people. So yeah. what, what, they can't pretend that the Commons is full of characters <coughs> if it isn't. No, but I think what they can do is understand. When you say, for example, it's boring, the TV debates, when you're talking about... And I'm a political nerd. I know. So that's the problem. So when you're talking about these, one of, two of, of these three people, one or two of them could become prime minister, right? And the other one might yeah. be a player. Now, to my mind, that should be enough for the public to want to engage in that. And the media debate and coverage around it is part of doing that. So when you have something like the X Factor, frankly, who gives a fuck? But when you have that, the media coverage is like, this really matters. Why you should vote for this one? Why you should vote for that? Celebrity Big Brother, all this stuff. Great and telly, though. Yeah, but what does that mean, great telly? No, I know, but our, our politics matters, and I wish it got better coverage, but Celebrity Big Brother is good to watch. It's easy to sneer at it. It's... It is great. I mean, and you can dress it up as a sociological experiment if you like. No, There's a lot of people who advocate it do. I just think it's great TV. You get involved in personal dramas. You get involved in, you know, goodies and baddies. And yeah, my, that's, and fine, that's fine. That's fine. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. What, the, what you shouldn't do is say that that is how we exercise our democratic No, but equally, vote. what politicians and should that is do what is sort of sneer at the X Factor and celebrity and go, what are you all idiots watching that for? And people say, well, because it's good. No, but on the, contrary, on the contrary, what the politicians do is they try to engage with it too much, in my view. Actually, I think what the politicians should be doing is saying, that's culture, we're politics. Where politics and culture mix, we'll get involved in that. You get far too many politicians who actually are, you know, playing the game on that stuff. And we did it too much as well. I mean, one of, one of the, my most cringe-making moments, which I still kind of slightly shiver, is when I, I don't know whether I was having a bad day or just bored or whatever, <laughs> I wrote a briefing, I wrote Tony into a Coronation Street script. <laughs> The free Deirdre Rashid. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Free the weather, yeah. free the weather field one. Yeah, I was just bored. And a poster up. Oh, I'm fed up talking about whatever crap they were asking me about. So, so anyway, more important than that, he, oops, he wants to free Deirdre. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> you know, it was on the news. You know, Tony Blair is back to free Deirdre. But there you go. I mean, the thing is... So I agree. A lot we're of people all to blame. sat in here and listened at him and will say, you started all of this. No, New Labour devalued oh politics. In a, lot of people's, in a lot of people's minds, they did. Yeah. It was trash. You know, Blair turned up on all sorts of programmes. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, mm. but he was on This Morning, and he was on uh, Des O'Connor. <coughs> he presented a Brit Award to David Bowie. Mm. He went everywhere. All the things that you're saying, this is culture, this is politics. Blair no, was no, the no. first one who really broke the rules. Yeah, Comic no, Relief and all that sort of business. Mm -hmm. oh, his Comic Relief was brilliant. It was, but... Ah, but that's the thing. You, you, on one hand, you're saying that they shouldn't do it. No, no, then I'm on not the saying... Hand, you're saying if they're saying good at it, then no, they can. No, you totally misunderstood what I was saying. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. I'm saying that in terms of how we look, and portray, look at and portray politics, we should not be saying... The media's general message should not be saying, here's politics not worth voting, here's the X factor really, really important. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying that politicians have to do a better job of defending what they do. Now... When you talk about it, it's interesting you mentioned Des O'Connor, because actually 
uh, if you read my diaries, that was Tony was of all the interviews he's ever done. I promise you, that was the one that most freaked him out. And it was extraordinary. Why? Because he was totally out of his comfort zone. If you're him, or you're me, or you're Pete the Mandelson, or whatever, and you do Jeremy Paxman and John Lambert, you, you know how to do that. Des O'Connor, in his own little way, is a lot harder. And because Tony was with an audi- a live audience, yeah. and he had to be funny, and he had to be different than the rest of it. So, uh, and actually, and he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. And I was saying, look, this is a demographic that never watches the news. This is a demographic that doesn't know who Jeremy Paxman is. This is a demographic that gets most of his information, a lot of them, from celebrity magazines. And that's just Des O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> you see how he's itching. He, he worked that one out right at the start. <laughs> I can read these guys like a book. So, anyway, he, he um, did it, and it was really, really good. And he was on form. And I promise you, if you do the Today programme, right, for the next... Four hours, as you bump into people, people say, oh, I was studying the Today Programme. Oh, we're good in the Today Programme. By the evening, everybody's forgotten it. There were people we were bumping, up to, bumping into for the next nine months. Oh, I saw you on Des O'Connor. That's why we do it. You, because, partly because the mainstream political media, their message the whole time is, this is boring, who cares, blah, blah, blah. But he got a lot of stick for that interview because yeah. he dropped his T's a lot. Was that something that he did naturally? Was it him just trying to sort of fit into his surroundings as any human being would? Or was that someone like you saying to him, sound a bit more working no, class, sound no, a bit more normal? No, 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 no. Yeah, and, and also, I don't think he ever did drop his T's. Oh, he did a bit. A bit, a bit, <laughs> a bit, yeah. But, but, but. Um, no, but he, he didn't, no. And, and, and stuff like that. Look, the thing about television, and particularly now with so much satire and people like you, you know, trying to make your name in the... In the, <laughs> um, <coughs> uh, the uh, I just start writing my wet dreams like you did. That'll, <laughs> <laughs> that'll clearly help. <laughs> no, but the thing is that... Um, what was we talking about? Uh, Tony Blair dropping his teeth and now you made him... Yeah, no, the thing about um, the telly and, the, and, and the, if you like, the severity of the scrutiny now, people aren't stupid. The, thi- the thing about people is they, they really get to the point. Why have we got a coalition government? Because the public, last time round, decided they couldn't decide. Why did they decide they couldn't decide? Because the centre of gravity of where public opinion was was basically saying, yeah, Labour's been around a long time, they've done quite a lot of good stuff, but mm-hmm. not having them back. Uh, Tories, not sure about them. Really not sure about that. Karen Marie looks the part, it sounds the part, but I'm really not sure. That's where public opinion was. So therefore, what did they do? They basically said, sort it out, can't, can't decide. <coughs> you guys sort it out. So this parliament, basically, I think, Cameron has been on probation. Yeah. Uh, Clegg, is, Clegg is a kind of fixer. He's in the middle of it. And you seem to quite like him. What is it you like? Um, I like his resilience. I respect him for going out on the front foot and doing cool Clegg and I like having his, these no, debates. I like his resilience and also... I'll tell you the other thing. I'll tell you the other thing. I, 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 I don't like him. and I want Labour to win, right? And I think the Lib Dems and the way that they... I can't stand the way they do this. <coughs> Constantly briefing the papers. We're trying to stop this. We're trying to stop that. Oh, dear, we couldn't stop that. I can't stand it, right? I mean, stand up and fight for what you believe in. However... If you're advising them, though, uh, if you were working for the Lib Dems, now, would you advise them to oh, do that? Oh, at this stage of the Parliament, they've got to start to do that a bit. But there's been too much of it, and these ridiculous. What's that woman up in Highgate resigning every five minutes? And I mean, I can't be doing with them. But Sarah Tether, is that her name? I don't know. Yeah, sort of all, <laughs> all sanctimonious. And, but the thing about um, 
about the other reason, Clay, is that a lot of the stuff I do now is on mental health and, men, you know, like the book and what have you, mental health awareness and, and stuff. And Clay has been good on that. Um, and so I'll speak as I find. I actually, you'll enjoy this. He and I visited a psychiatric hospital recently together. <laughs> He's still there. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? <laughs> he can't. <laughs> oh, mate, honestly. Um, <coughs> so, you went, so you went on a double trip together. <laughs> so yeah. And um, what, I don't like did you have him. small talk with him? And was yeah, right? I think as a I think as a person he's fine. I think he's I think actually he is quite normal. Um, that can be a problem with politicians. <laughs> I did an amazing talk. Uh, um, I wasn't amazing, but the event was amazing. Well, I was probably quite good, but it was <coughs> it was at King King Lear. No, it was a King King Lear, right? Yeah. Do you know about Shakespeare? I bet I can guess the headline, though, if you were in the audience. King Liar. <laughs> I should have I should have worked, I should have worked in the tabloids. <coughs> so, King Lear, National Theatre, Simon Russell Beale as King Lear. Unbelievable. And I'm a bit of a Shakespeare nut. And the theatre asked me... I can tell, I've read your previous work. I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, <laughs> I remember that bit Matt. in the Tempest where the ghost starts beating off into the sea while her <laughs> <laughs> old wench has hold his balls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, they asked me to do a talk because you know what King Lear's about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, about, it's about a king who goes mad when he, when he carves oh, up yeah, his... Oh, yeah, that's the one, yeah. <laughs> So they asked you to do a talk about power and, power and madness, yeah, yeah. right? And I was with, on the panel, this American psychiatrist called Dr. Nasagami. And he was extraordinary. He's written a brilliant book called First Rate Madness. I thoroughly recommend it. Which is all about how the great leaders and the great change makers of the world have basically all been mad. Um, and so Churchill, Lincoln, Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King tried to kill himself early on. Marlon Brando, Van Gogh, uh, Michelangelo. It's just you know, me and you, obviously. Um, <coughs> so, but, uh, but I, I... I'm all right, mate. I'm all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you see, because I, I think the, 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 the point about that, about Clegg, remember we're talking about Clegg, is that this guy makes the point that... Now, this is where I departed company from him, right? He said that Lincoln and Churchill are defined as the greatest American and the greatest British leaders ever... Churchill was bipolar and he had a bit of a drink problem. Mm -hmm. uh, Lincoln was a chronic depressive. They call it melancholy back then, but if you read some of the accounts of what he was like physically, and, mm -hmm. so, and, and what, <coughs> what um, this guy says is that that gave them this extraordinary resilience and empathy. And also, when you're manic, and I know about mania, that's why I can write a book in nine days, when you're manic, you have this kind of extraordinary self-confidence, extraordinary belief in yourself, extraordinary mm. ability to take big decisions. And that, he said, is what made Lincoln and Churchill. He says Bush and Tony were, quote, too normal. And he says they are brilliant peacetime leaders. Now, I disagree with him because, of course, Tony was brilliant all the time. <laughs> but I, th I, and I thought that with Clegg. Peacetime stretching it as well. as <laughs> 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 no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What I meant by what he meant by that was that his view was that yeah. Tony up to 9/11 yeah, yeah, sure. was a great leader, 
and that after that, when it all became about war, now I disagree with him on that, but that's, that was his point. And th so this thing about it is a very, very interesting thought, this about normality. We're all told, you know, by parents, by teachers, by peers, it's all about being normal. I think every now and again you have to celebrate abnormality because that's what you need to really make a difference. That's what we're doing tonight. So, uh <laughs> <laughs> how are we doing that? <laughs> I mean, in terms of when you talk about you know, <coughs> mania and how you understand it, then you talk about people um, trying to kill themselves and things like that. Mm. Is that something you've ever come close to or considered? Suicide. Yeah. Oh yeah. Regular Come on, make a joke. No, no, I can't <laughs> joke about You're that, a can I? No, I can't joke about um, that. Not regular, no, but I mean, I think if you get really bad depression, you think about it a lot. I'll never do it, uh, but you certainly think about it. I've only ever once thought about it in what I would call a, an active, practical, logistical way. And the first novel, you read the first novel, there is a suicide in it. And, um, and that, is how I was, that is how I would do it. Um, but I won't do it. And the reason I won't do it is because I've learnt to live in my own way with these, this stuff that goes on in my head. And it's a mixture of medication and therapy and family and sport and work and, you know, and having a great life. I mean, that's the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something now, which my, d my daughter will be really pleased that I say this because she's, she's been telling me for ages, you've got to, get, you've got to say this. Um, I, <coughs> I met Jeremy Hunt. And he said something to me which I just thought, he talked about being out of touch. He said, do you know what? I saw you on the telly talking about depression. And I thought, why is Alice Campbell depressed? And I thought, you know, it's an, it's like it's an illness. Mm. Some people get it, some people don't. And the thing about depression when it's really bad, um, and look, I know people who have it bad all the time. Right, they can't get out of bed. They can't open their eyes. They can't brush their teeth. I get that sometimes, right? And I mean, I wrote a little memoir, a little depression memoir called The Happy Depressive. It's just a sh it was started as an e-book, but actually, this depression thing is so big now that actually the publisher was getting people saying, "I don't do all that e-thing. Can you do a book?" So they've done a book now, <coughs> and it's called The Happy Depressive. And 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 actually, I love the title because it kind of is what I am. I am happy most of the time. I've got an amazing life. I've got an amazing family. I've got amazing friends. I have the most incredible experience. You know, I sometimes look at my passport and think, God, I can't believe I went there. Well, did I, what was I doing there? And then I remember, oh, yeah, I was interviewing Lance Armstrong there. Or I was, you know, I was doing whatever. And I have this amazing life, which, and I can put things back. I can do things. I can hopefully make change, not least in this mental health area. But I get depression. And when you get depression, as there'll be, I would reckon, 20 or 30 people in here will know, minimum. When you get depression, there is nothing you can do. There's nothing. You can take the pills and that helps. I've been on antidepressants for the last nine months. No, September. I had a really bad bout in, in July and I resisted and resisted and resisted and eventually I went on them in September and I'm still on them. Um, and that's fine and I'm fine with that. Um, but when it's really, really, really bad, it's, it's just, that's why I write about it. It's impossible to describe what that feels like when you wake up but you're dead you wake up and your eyelids won't open and you're telling your brain to open your eyelids and you're literally inside your mind you're attaching like jcb diggers to your eyes go on really 
put it really lifted, really try. And sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. How much is it affected um, by, in your case, your workload or your lifestyle during those tumultuous years in Downing Street at the height of Iraq? Was that a difficult time in yeah. terms of your mental health? Yeah, um, I don't know if it was especially. It was a difficult time, full stop. Um, Funny enough, I think I had depression, intense depression, more since I left, and that's maybe because I was because I have more time to breathe. I found it, uh, and what was interesting when I was transcribing my diaries was, and this is where you've got to, you know, one of the reasons I don't want to go back in full time is because the truth is you do damage your family. There's no doubt about that. And I noticed when I was transcribing my diaries that the start of every holiday, I was a fucking nightmare for a week. I couldn't relax, I couldn't, I was snappy, I was argumentative, I was difficult. I was depressed. Why was I depressed? Because I was literally decompressing. So you're in that. Now the thing I say about, <coughs> I think this thing about mania and depression, I'm, I've, since I met this guy, I've really read a lot about it, I've thought a lot about it. Because I think if you get something as bad as depression, you want to believe there's a sort of purpose to it. Mm. You want to believe there's some sort of positive to it. So I now look back, for example, my breakdown in the 80s is the best thing that ever happened to me. Why do I say that? One, because I sorted myself out. But two, because I'd ne I would never have written these novels if I hadn't have had that experience. When you say it's yours personal experience, I know about the descent into alcoholism, and that's why I write a book. And that, to me, is like a getting a good thing out of a bad thing. Um, and I want to feel there's something good about depression. I want to feel there's something good about psychosis. And there is. There is. You can, if you get through it. But the thing is, a lot of people don't get through it. And a lot of people, I mean, the, the suicide rates of young men, it's, you know, it's going up again. And, and the thing is, when you go out, you know, if we walk out here now, you wouldn't walk around the streets. It's not long before you see somebody lying on the street, right? Now, most people look at that guy and think, oh, that's sad. Or they think, you know, pull yourself together, whatever they think. I honestly, I look at that guy and I usually think, I don't do God as you know, but I usually think there but for the grace of God. Because that could be, he didn't start there. He started as a child. He had parents, maybe one, maybe two. He had siblings probably. He went to school. He probably had a job at some point. Might have had a wife. Might have had kids. And now he's on the street. I mean, it's, you're on a precipice, aren't you, really? Because I've, uh, your struggle with alcohol is well known and you've made documentaries about it and written about it widely. But I read recently, only in the last couple of years, that you'd said that occasionally you have a drink. Mm. And I was very surprised by that because in my head, I had you as a sort of all or nothing mm. person. Uh, but uh, od oddly, we sort of encouraged by it that, you know, you'd, you'd sort of added this new angle to it. I mean, how often do you drink at the moment? Not often. Last one I last had a drink. Uh, I can't remember, to be honest. Not drinking at the moment. Um, I mean, I'd, it's back to this thing about normality, I think. I think partly there is a... I think within abnormal people, there is also a yearning for normality. And I think that the reason why I wanted to... I went 13 years without touching it. Didn't have a drop. Mm. And I, I wish I'd stayed on that. And the first time when I did it, I can remember... We, I was in a... Uh, we were at the British Ambassador's residence in Bonn, as it was. Well, it still is, but it's no longer the embassy. And... I I just had a drink. <laughs> and I, I didn't and I, what was going through my mind was I wanted to see whether I would could, whether I could have one drink. Now, when I when I first rev revealed this, the reason I did it was because I thought I couldn't make a program about alcoholism and do interviews about it and 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 pretend 
that I'd not had a drink since mm. March the 4th, 1986, because it wasn't true. I'd, I didn't have a drink between March the 4th, 1986 and, and 1999, but then I did have a drink. Then I didn't have a drink again for a couple of years. And then on holiday with Fiona, I liked having a glass of wine, and it felt normal. Just one? Two, max. So you've never, you've never had a drink and then it's led to... No, but more. I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it, but I think why I do it is to test myself, and it's stupid. But the other thing is, I'm basically an. A I'm, I'm a. The other thing I've learned by myself, I'm an addict, and alcohol was one of my addictions. Uh, work is an Work is still an addiction. I still work way, way, way too much. Um, I look at my diary sometimes and think, "What the fuck are you doing this for?" And the answer is. So you can publish them. <laughs> <laughs> Ten ninety nine available afterwards, I believe, Alistair. Um, no, you, I know you work very hard, and you know I, 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 when you were in Downing Street, just as an observer, it was obvious that you were sort of an addictive individual. That mm. you were the, the job was total, mm. and you would read accounts of getting up in the morning and the Today program. You know, just the whole day being addictive. Um, do you think during that period in the lead up to the war in Iraq, which must have been from a personal point of view? actually quite an addictive time to be involved at the centre of government, mm -hmm. that that attitude was perhaps a negative influence on government policy or on Tony Blair's direction? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think, um, I mean, in terms of work, how the kind of mental health thing played out, um, I think broadly it was positive in that, I, I, if, if you like, I put all my energies into work, and I put all my energies into, when we were in opposition, into winning and then in trying to sort of build a, you know, a proper government machine and trying to support Tony and John Prescott and Gordon and the rest of them in the way that I did. And I think most of the time <coughs> I did that pretty well. Um, I mean, Iraq was difficult because the decisions were so difficult and because public opinion was so clearly in a different place to where the decisions were being made. And that's always very, very difficult because, I mean, back to the point about being in a democracy... Democracy is part. It's only, democracy is partly about reflecting public opinion, but actually leadership is about leading. And the thing is that I think, funny enough, I did an interview with Alex Salmon for GQ last week, which will be out in June, I think. And he he's quite an interesting guy because he he has definitely got more of a leadership gene than I thought he had. When he was like a young SNP, I was a journalist. He was a young SNP. We never, in fact, I, I'm amazed he agreed to do the interview because I once didn't realise I was doing this. I was this like I was up in Scotland doing a, an event. And I didn't realise Salmon was in the room. I mean, he wasn't a big deal then, <coughs> but somebody asked me what I thought of the SNP, and he was. He, he, and, and I said, "Well, you know, it's basically a one-man band. It's Alex Salmon. He, he, he looks to me like a guy who fell in love with himself at first sight and has remained entirely faithful ever since." <laughs> um, and then I looked out. I thought, oh, shit. Um, but, but actually, what was interesting about him was this thing about, about leadership and him saying that ultimately leadership is about... It's, it is about doing what you think is right. It really is. And so, so when people... I don't mind people saying we were wrong in Iraq. What I can't stand are the people who say, Tony Blair did it for this reason, this reason, this reason. It had nothing to do with... The, the, what was actually happening, blah, blah, blah. I can't stand that. But there's uh, all that we lied, because yeah. that is nonsense as well. I supported the, the war in Iraq, and I'm one of the few people that still does. Mm. But there are a lot of things, aren't there? And I find it hard when I discuss it with people. Um, 
the, the proximity between Blair and Bush mm -hmm. and the perception that Tony had already given a, an assurance to Bush prior to the vote in Parliament. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any truth in that? Look, what there, what, there was nothing said privately that you couldn't have picked up very, very publicly from his words and his body language when he was with George Bush. He was absolutely clear from 9-11 that he felt this was a fundamental assault on America, on democratic values and so forth. And, 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 then, and actually, Bush was, if anything, I think, more cautious than we expected him to be post-9-11. And then when he got into Iran, I mean, I, I'll tell you st a story about 9-11 about itself. I mean, it was extraordinary way because we were down at the TUC. It was the first time ever that Tony got a standing ovation from the mm. TUC because he said that he was not going to make a speech. He was going to go back to London to, <laughs> <coughs> to deal with the, the, the fallout. And we got on a train, and I remember there was a guy from Time magazine who'd been down covering, the, covering the Tony's speech. He couldn't believe that we were, he's the Prime Minister and one of the most important people in the world at this moment. And we're on that rickety train from Brighton. Yeah. and having to sort of try and grab a few seats here and there. Anyway, so Tony got a pad. He, Tony's very, very pen and paper, and he got a pad. And we were all we were phoning people. We were setting up meetings when we got back and stuff. And he got this pad, and he wrote down all the things that we would need to think about. And I'll never forget this. And, um, you know, it will be, this will be, it will exist somewhere, this piece of paper. And, it, and, and on it, on this list of about 20, 30, 40 things, it just said MWD slash rogue states. So when we talked at, at the Chilcot Inquiry about how 9-11 changed the calculus of threat, that's what that was about. Mm. So that when you then had, and again, you've got to remember, he's the Prime Minister, you have systems, you have people who are giving advice, you have papers coming in, the flow of intelligence was pointing in one direction. Yeah. And this idea that we, you know, we sexed it out, we did this, we focused on this, we focused on that, the French, the Germans, the Americans, they were getting the same stuff. And ultimately... It wasn't a question of saying, well, on the one hand, on the other. It was a question of making a decision. So the French decided no. Yep. The Germans decided no. We decided yes. And then f part of politics is then about trying to persuade public opinion to go with you. But part of international <coughs> politics is by abiding by the principles of the UN. And a lot of people feel as though those principles are broken. Yeah, but, but the UN, people, people talk about the UN as though it's like a judge. The UN is a political body made up of all the countries of the world. That You're never going to get the Chinese and the Russians to do. I mean, at the moment, the UN is basically... It has no real power at the moment. So if you've got... that, Look, it emerged from the Second World War. I think there will come a point where there has to be another look at that. And funnily enough, I talked to Salmon about this. One of the things I'm worried about in relation to Scotland, if it does go independent, I'm very British, right? But I'm British then Scottish. That's my kind of identity, as it were. I read, and my mum, who's listening, as you know, <coughs> she, she's, she's 87 now. And I, I promise you, she loses sleep about it. She's really worried about it. What about losing the referendum? Yeah. She really, really doesn't want Scotland to go independent. Now, my point is that... Um, what was I talking about? I lost my thread there with my mum. We're talking about Iraq and... You UN. UN, yeah. and, and I said to, to Sam, and look, I'm really worried that one of the unintended co consequences of this is Scotland goes off. If I was Angela Merkel, or I was the president of Brazil, or Turkey, or India, or, I'd say, excuse me, look, you know, you've got this post-war settlement of these five big powers, America, Russia, China, Britain, and France. You've got, you, why is Britain 
still on the European, the United Nations Security, Security Council. Council yeah. Now, Salmond said, well, I would, I would do everything I could to stop that. And did that. I said, well, you know, look, we become a smaller country. And then if you pull us out of Europe as well, forget it. So I think that um, the people talk about the UN. If you said you can't do anything without the UN, you'd never do anything. And the way, when you go back to the, people forget this. Again, you know, if you get the, the, the last volume of my diaries, which is all post 9-11, I can remember there was a big, it got big coverage in Mexico, right? And I was getting all these, Mex these cuttings on the, you know, from Mexico. The reason for that was actually there's quite a lot about Mexico in it. Why was there a lot about Mexico? Because they, they had the rotating seat on they the Security Council. They had these Council. rotating seats on the Security Council. Who were the other rotating, one of the other rotating seats was Libya. <laughs> <coughs> there comes a certain point in the diplomatic process when Zimbabwe's on there. Mm. So when we say, don't do it without the UN, if you, if you go down that route, you go nowhere. Now, of course, there are, there's a, there are consequences. Vladimir Putin at the moment, one of his arguments is, don't give me this UN stuff after what you guys did in Iraq. So he'll use it to his own advantage. Overall, do you think um, the decision to go into Iraq has... Firstly, do you think Iraq has improved as a result? I think Iraq has improved as a result. Uh, however... I think there are things going on in Iraq now, and not all of them directly a consequence of the military action. That's, again, some of the people I really can't stand. Every time there's a, uh, a suicide bomb in, in Iraq, you know, with 10 dead, 20 dead, 100 dead, whatever it might be, there's a few people who tweet me with a link and say, guess you're proud of yourself now, right? And I never block them, because that's what they want, and so they do it every time. But... You, couldn't, you can't even persuade them that actually that is happening because of the forces that we were up against in relation to Afghanistan. But, but, and, but and almost by then definition of failed to contain. Absolutely. And that's why... I'll tell you the thing, one of the things I'm most worried about at the moment, you go back to the power of the UN. I think in terms of global leadership, we've talked about learning the lessons for Labour. When the Chilcot Inquiry comes out, there'll be lots of people saying, let's learn the lessons and learn the mm. lessons and learn the lessons. One of the lessons that has been learned already, as if we didn't know it, is that if democratic leaders do really, really, really difficult things that become very, very unpopular, they're going to have that hung around their necks forever. So when you have Barack Obama says, if Assad uses chemical weapons, that's a red line, mm. right? And then when he uses chemical weapons and the red line turns out to be a bit pink, and then Assad thinks, oh, I've got away with that. I'll do it again. I'll do this again. And then Putin yeah. thinks, these guys are weak. But, but Obama was pushed eventually as a result, if you like, of parliamentary action in this country, led yeah. by the leader of the Labour Party, Ed right. Miliband. Right. Do you think Miliband was right to halt the march to war on Syria? I think, Ed, I totally understood his position, but <laughs> I, th I do think that... I, I'm not, I'm not criticising Ed on this, because I think... It, Look, he genuinely... Politicians should always say what they genuinely believe. And he thought that was, he was, that was the right position to hold. Now, I, am, I will criticise Cameron on this because I think Cameron, who I think is a bit petulant, when the vote happened, I think Ed Miliband was genuinely shocked when Cameron stood up and said, OK, I get the message, military action's off the table. Mm. Ed wasn't saying that. Ed was saying... Not Wait and see. Let, let's not rush into this. Let's try and do this and try and do this and try and do this and try and do this. And I, th so I was surprised Cameron did that. I was equally surprised that Obama almost took that as a green light to say, well, let's call it off. Did, uh, did Ed ask for your advice throughout that period at all? I did talk to him during that period, yeah. 
And what was your advice to him? Volume 12. <laughs> uh, no, I think on these situations, is that I'm, I'm, I am very, very open about what doing stuff, but I, I do think on situations like that, that, look, it's difficult for Ed. Ed opposed the Iraq war. I don't disrespect him for that, to use one of Tony's favourite words, normally used when you disrespect somebody. Um, <laughs> but I genuinely don't, I genuinely don't, I genuinely don't disrespect Ed for the position that he took. I understood why he was there. Um, and then, you know, when the Iraq inquiry comes out, I don't know what it's going to say, but Ed, that's going to be a big moment. Cameron will have to take a position. Ed will have to take a position. My position will be that I can, I totally defend Tony on this, and I will always totally defend him because I saw the gravity of the situation. I saw the care that he took in dealing with that situation. I will also, though, as did Tony at the Chilcot inquiry, admit that things went wrong, admit that the planning wasn't properly thought through. Um, but the consequence, when people say that what's going on now is a direct consequence of the war, nonsense. And also, just here's another little thing you should put, put back to these people when you argue with them. You imagine during the so-called Arab Spring, and we can come on to the yeah. consequences of that in a minute if you want, you imagine if Saddam had still been around during that period? Oh, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm I mean, a wholehearted supporter you know, of, of the military action that Tony Blair took. But uh, And look at what's happened since in Libya, in Egypt... Absolutely. Syria. And you see, what we're do this is the point I'm making about democracy. Democracy is, Churchill said, it's the best of all, you know, it's the worst system apart from all the others. But let's not pretend that everybody's going to get very, very quickly to a British style parliamentary democracy that they're not. Just before, because I'll open it up to the floor in a second, but in terms of Iraq and how it's affected you personally, do you f is it something that's on your, you know, that you think about every day? Do you get abuse for it every day? Do you get people in the street? having a go at you? Not much, no. I mean, I think about it a lot. Um, I think about it partly because I get asked about it. Uh, I think about it because it's a big defining thing. I think of it also in the context of, of um, I mean, it, you know, th the way people talk about Tony and his reputation now really, really makes me angry mm. because I think Tony was a great guy and a great leader. Um, and I think that I've seen how hard that job is. I've seen it with him, I've seen it as a journalist with Thatcher, with Major, I've seen it with Gordon. I know how hard it is. I've seen a lot of these leaders up close and very, very personal. And there aren't many who do it well. And Tony, I think, did it really, really well. And the thing about Iraq, it did take a personal toll because, you know, Fiona was totally opposed to it. That was difficult. Uh, you do get some abuse in the street. One of the, one of the, one of the reasons I hate these... Um, Hate's too strong a word, but one of the reasons that some of these kind of... Despise. You know, no, not even despise, because <laughs> that in a way is what they want. That is what they want. But the, I remember when my... So how old was my daughter now? She's 19, so she'd have been nine. So during the build-up to the Iraq war, she's coming home from school with some of her friends, and there's these anti-war protesters outside my house, and they give her these leaflets, which are pictures of kids who've been gassed at Halabja by Saddam Hussein. And gives them, she gives them, give them to my daughter and says, will you go and ask your dad why he's doing that? Now, my son, who was then 15, 16, I had to stop him going out and tearing their heads off. Uh, that gets me. Um, but but, but so a bit of gentle abuse never bothered me. Did, you still, did people see you in the street and shout war criminals, stuff like that? Very rarely. How do you react to it when it happens? Um, it depends. 
It's happened a few times. I had a situation recently where um, Galloway's making this film on Tony and basically we're all war criminals and he's going to get us to the Hague. That's going to be the end of the film and blah, 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 blah. He, by the way, is one of the most loathsome people on the planet. <laughs> um, We've had him on the show. Yeah, who, 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 <laughs> who, who, is, who, is who is motivated by one thing and that is George Galloway. Uh, I first met George Galloway when he was r running War on One into the ground, which is where it ended. Um, so anyway, they turned up with this, these film people. I was doing a fundraiser for Stella Creasy, who I hear was a great success when you did that. Um, and, 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 um, and I was doing this fundraiser. And at the end, I can suddenly spot this guy. He's probably here. I spot this guy with his little secret camera. And I thought, oh, God, here we go. So then this guy, this, this, uh, his little mate comes over and goes, oh, I'm arresting you for war crimes. And I just thought, oh, fuck off. <laughs> so <coughs> anyway, so at which point, it kicked off. It just kicked off. And, there were, and the, the, because the, the, there'd been a warning that there was going to be a protest there, the police were there. And this guy who's working with Galloway starts laying into these coppers, including a policewoman. Very nice, I thought, George. That's nice. He just did a policewoman. Um, and all these other people, Stella and all these they're all running around, oh, my God, and they palpitate the rest of it. And do you know what? I do stay very, very calm in those situations. And part of that is back to my breakdown. When you've been in a situation where you honestly think you're going to die, because I did, I was mad, thought I was going to die, uh, and you've come back from that, some little wanker calling you a war criminal. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's open the floor. We've got about ten minutes for questions. If I can ask, please, one sentence uh, questions, and Alistair, please, one sentence answer. I'm keen that as many people as possible uh, get to ask a question. It's only right that we start, Alan, as you've been so... Uh, now, I'll start with you, Alan. Um, what's, what's your question? Well, but the, the answer I'll just have to repeat the questions to the podcast. Okay, yeah, so, that people yeah. can hear it. Uh, so why is there never cross-party consensus on what's best for Britain? Well, the reason for that is because politics is about agreement and disagreement. Uh, but in, in the specific... So if we, I'll give you the best example recently of cross-party agreement where everybody agreed at, when it came to the crunch that we should do something was going for the London Games and getting them and building them and making them a success. We can talk separately, if you like, about the utterly disastrous lack of sports legacy, thanks to these people who don't understand sport on any level, especially Michael Gove. So, <coughs> part of that. Um, but so, the, so the point is, when you say why there was no consensus, some people think there should be a third runway, some people don't. Ed Miliband was in the cabinet at the time that Alistair Darling was taking that decision forward and Gordon was taking that decision forward. Ed Miliband opposed it. David Cameron, I think for totally opportunistic reasons, came out and said a Tory government wouldn't support it. He's now sitting there thinking, I wish I hadn't done that. He won a couple of seats on the back of it, probably. But I think, again, politics and leadership, it's about leadership. You'll only build that leadership if you go out and say, this is difficult, but this is why we need to do it. You can build that support. But I think the HS2 and the third runway, I think the chances of them happening are pretty slim. Okay, uh, is there anyone up on the balcony that would like to ask a question? We've got a balcony. Yeah, there's a balcony up there. I didn't right? even look up there, sorry. Anyone? Shout out if there is, because the visibility is quite poor from down here. Anyone? 
No one on the balcony. Okay, the gentleman down here, what's your name? Uh, Aidan, what's your question, please? Um, Do you think someone with mental health issues could become prime minister oh, yeah, or a party leader? Definitely, definitely. Do you think there have been party leaders in the past that have suffered with it? Winston Churchill. But Winston in the post-war? Um, no. no. no I, I sometimes wonder whether Churchill would have survived with 24-hour news. You know, he used to lie in bed till 12 o'clock. Can you imagine Adam Bolton if, if, the, <laughs> if, the, if he hadn't seen the prime minister by midday? Mm, oh, yeah. <laughs> He'd have a clock going around, he's had to sleep, and how much did he have to drink, and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think, look, let's be honest, most people have, well, we all have mental health. Why do we assume, how many people here have never had to see a doctor for their physical health? Why do we assume that mental health, which is more complicated, is any different? So, and I think, I think what's happening, I'm quite excited about this mental health thing, because I think it is changing. I think it is changing very, very slowly. Um, and John Woodcock, I mean, John's a very, very old friend of mine. He used to work for me, and he's a top bloke. And actually, I could see John Woodcock going very, very high up the political ladder. Um, so yet my, my answer to that is yes, and I think the sooner it happens, the better. He had a really interesting situation in Norway a few years ago where the prime minister had chronic, really bad depression. He went to the cabinet, and he said, look, I can't function. I'm going to have to resign. And the cabinet said, no, we're not allowing you to resign. You should take time off. You should get treatment. You've got a deputy, he'll stand in, and that's what happened. And I thought, yes, he did. <coughs> yeah, he did. Okay, uh, if I can ask for shorter answers, please, Alistair, so that we can get round. Uh, yes, the gentleman at the bar with the glasses. And how do you think New Labour will be remembered in 20 years' time? How will New Labour be remembered in 20 years' time? I don't know, is the answer to that. Um, but I think if you boil it down, we're talking about history, when you boil it down. into one sentence. Three, right. <laughs> three, three general election wins, Bank of England independence, peace in Northern Ireland, sure start, new deal, biggest investment programme in schools and hospitals. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Let's get, uh, yes, the gentleman at the back, what's your name please? Uh, Jez. Jez? Is there an unhealthy relationship between the press and senior politicians? Uh, in the there is, and um, it is, uh, and I think Leveson was an opportunity to cure that. And I think it's tragic that David Cameron is putting his own short-term interests of keeping the press broadly on board ahead of what is an obvious national interest, which is to have a proper self, independent self-regulator for the press. Um, are you partly responsible for the corrosion in that relationship? No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, yes, mate. What's your name, please? Dan. Dan. Do you think Tony Blair epitomises democracy as firstly as being a champion of socialist leaders, but of a socialist party? <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, and that's spawning off around the world making millions of dubious personal tax deductibles, mm. and secondly, being an image of the system where a lot of these people are joined mm. Does okay. Tony Blair embody hypocrisy in the life that he's led since uh, being Prime Minister, including uh, the money he's made? You want nice short sentences? Wanker. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Oh, oh, that's harsh. That's harsh. That is harsh. All to right. be fair, that's a good, that's a good okay. question. Well, you that's want to? Can I, have, can I have a longer answer then? Well, you can just can I have a longer answer. I'll have a longer answer. The longer answer is this. The longer answer is this. Um, Tony Blair. How many? How many people do you think he employs at the moment? About two hundred. 
How many of them do you think are working on projects on governance in Africa? Have you ever read about that in the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph that you read? I don't read the Daily Mail. Okay. Telegraph's a good paper. Very good paper. <laughs> Very good this paper. Is, I love it. I so, love the Telegraph. Um, yeah. so, and and, and, and why, 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 might, why might the international community think that somebody like Tony Blair might be actually quite effective in a very difficult peace negotiation uh, because of Northern Ireland, possibly. I don't know if you've ever thought about that through your prejudice. Yeah, but Alistair, to be fair, but, but a lot of people, would, a lot of Labour people have a problem with the, Tony Blair's lifestyle since leaving well, office in terms of the amount of money he's making. Yeah, right, which is a lot less than Bill Clinton, and they don't have a problem with that. Why don't they have a problem with that? Well, because he's because British and we're British. No, right, but it's partly because of a media that will only... That guy clearly didn't know that Tony runs several massive pro bono projects in Africa. It pro you probably don't know he's got a sports foundation. You probably don't know that he does... I don't know, because I don't see his diary in the way that I, his schedule in the way that I used to, but I would imagine most days of the week, Tony will be doing, as I do, a majority of stuff for which he doesn't get paid. Now, you need, when you're him, and you're building up a big organisation, you need m money to do that. I know Tony Blair better than you ever will, and I know he's... <laughs> okay, well, you probably don't want to hear the answer either, because you've got your own prejudice and you'll keep it. And I'm trying to educate you, you know, because I see my role now, when I hear, when I hear prejudice... When I hear prejudice against the guy that I consider to have been one of the most successful political leaders on the planet, I will say what I think. And what I think is that you've got a view driven by your own politics and your lack of knowledge about him and about what he does now. That's what I'm saying. And don't expect me to be polite when I think the first shorter answer was what my genuine assessment of your question. <laughs> Can you guys shake hands? Well, I'll shake hands, but I mean, if, I'm, if I think... Do you want to so shake hands, Dan? I'm not shaking hands. I'll, we'll get another question. I, I, I feel sort of bad that that atmosphere's developed here. We're all right, aren't we, mate? Yeah. <laughs> That's fine, then. We'll come back. No, but listen. Yes, I know it was a question, but it was a question loaded with prejudice. I'm going to challenge the prejudice. Okay, their views... Hypocrite. Why is he a hypocrite? He says he's a hypocrite because he's the Middle East peace process. He says he's a hypocrite. You, you, being a hypocrite to me is where you are doing something totally counter to your beliefs for whatever a bad motive. For him to devote a very large part of his life now, unpaid, to trying to help the Middle East peace process, don't call him a hypocrite because if you call him a hypocrite, I'll call you a wanker because that's what you are. <laughs> Okay, well, let's, let's... I know enough, I know enough. Let's move on, let's move on. I know enough. Let's, let's, if we can't bring peace to the Middle East, let's bring it to this stage. Um, <laughs> yes, the gentleman at the back. Alan's upset now no, we, well. need, we need quick, we need one sentence, and please, if they are one sentence answers, because they're not include insults. Would Alan Pardew, what, sorry? Start a fight with Sean Dyke. Start a fight with Sean Dyke, Bernie manager, yeah. Alan, both of them are good friends of mine. Alan Pardew, I think, is a top bloke, and it wasn't really a headbutt, in my view. Um, it was a bit... He shouldn't have done it. He shouldn't, he, should, he shouldn't have done it. He shouldn't have done it. Sean Dyche, by the way, regardless of what happens with season, should be manager of the season. He's done an amazing job. If you go up. Uh, yes. <laughs> What's the question down there? Is um, the £1 million tax threshold a necessary vote winner for the Tories? Does it have to be? Is the £1 million in, uh, inheritance tax threshold a vote winner for the Tories? Mm. They think it is. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Not, not convinced. You can. You can argue. You can argue against it. You can win the argument against it. 
Um, I, I don't want to sound really PC, but are there any women that would like to ask a question? I'm, I'm sort of aware that it's been all Yes, there's a lady at the bar. What would you like to ask? Okay, in a, in a tight sort of in, in tight fiscal circumstances, how does Labour compete against a likely Tory tax giveaway on a pledge card? Um, the short answer is I don't know, in that I don't know what they are going to do, but I've got a fair idea where the areas should be. You have to have an e economic offer, and I think Ed is right to be focusing on living standards, public services. I mean, I think the the Tories are have got a deliberate strategy of running down the health service, running down schools, running down teachers, running down the police, as a way of saying actually. Things are much, much, much wor worse than they are. We've got to fight back on health much harder than we are. Uh, when we were let kicked out of office, the National Health Service had the highest satisfaction ratings in its history. And the Tories are talking about it as though it's a busted flush for their own reasons. So there's got to be something big on health. I think, there's got to I think the, this cultural space is very, very important. I hope we fight harder back on immigration. I think Ed was right to do what he did on Europe. And I think that the, uh, so if you've got, you need something on the economy, something on jobs, something on health, something on education. And I also think foreign policy is going to be a bigger issue at this next election than it has been in the past, even with Iraq. Uh, because I think that the world's in a pretty tricky place. Uh, that, that brings us to the end. Just before we finish, Alistair, I try, if I remember, to get uh, each guest to provide the first question for the next guest. Now, our next guest next month at the end of April is Michael Fabricant. Uh, oh. What, what first question should I ask him? Is it a wig? <laughs> <laughs> I'm already deciding whether I'm allowed to touch it or not. I, I've, I've watched him on television. No, I'll tell, tell you what. I'll tell you. That, that, uh, no, I don't mind Michael Fabrican, actually, but what about... I don't know anybody who changes his Twitter picture quite as often as he does. <laughs> How often does he change his Twitter picture and why? And why. Okay, well, there we go. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, tonight has uh, been uh, another phenomenal night and uh, I think it proves, um, firstly, that there are more Blairites in the world than I thought there were, uh, but, uh, but that people want to come to politics and that ideas and people are interesting. Uh, so thank you to all of you who came down and were kind enough to buy a ticket. Alistair's novel, uh, which is excellent, and uh, the first, well, the, the sort of best of the diaries, the Blair years, uh, are on sale in the foyer and Alistair's happy to uh, sign them as well. Um, the Blair years is, you know, goes without saying, uh, an encyclopedic coverage. Uh, it's and your favourite book, isn't it? <laughs> Go on, isn't uh, it? It's, it's up there with a couple of Brian Clough ones. And, um, mm, I'll buy that. Yeah, I'll couple, buy that. A couple, of, a couple of your mucky earlier volumes, which uh, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately aren't available for autographing. Um, all stuck together. Uh, so, anyway... Um, oh, yeah, I had to go there, didn't I? I had to, I had to, I had to end on a light point. Um, ladies and gentlemen... Uh, well, yes, next month, uh, Michael Fabricant, the Conservative MP for Litchfield. Uh, in May, uh, I've secured a guest that... I've written his book at the moment, it's phenomenal. He's the man who convinced Tommy Robinson uh, to leave the EDL. He's a former radical Islamist. He's now a parliamentary candidate for the Liberal Democrats. His name's Majid Nawaz. And if you saw Newsnight in the last week, he ran rings around Mehdi Hassan. He's a phenomenal individual. His book is out of this world, uh, and he's agreed to join us in May. And then in June, the former Deputy Speaker of the House of Commons, Sir Alan Hazelhurst. Uh, will be joining us. So we've got a good mix of guests to, to come in the year ahead. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, let's end uh, by giving a massive ovation to our guest, Mr. Alistair Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Alistair Campbell, ladies and gentlemen. What a top night. Um, I'm not sure how you feel about that bit at the end uh, where he calls the lad a wanker. Uh, I thought it was too far um, and I said so again afterwards and I think 
maybe on reflection he'd have chosen his words a little better, but that shouldn't overshadow what was an absolutely top night. And just the honesty with which he talks about his views, um, his personal battles with alcoholism, with depression, uh, to the point where he genuinely, at least one point, as he said, really thought about committing suicide, um, is an honesty that you, you really rarely get um, in such huge figures. And you can just tell, you, there, there, there's a way people behave and a way people talk. He's just got a genuine class about him, that even people who disagreed with him on the night were coming out just saying, he's great, you know, even if they wouldn't necessarily vote Labour, um, they understood him more than uh, they had done previously. And that's always the aim of these shows, is to enlighten and also to entertain. Um, the next three shows uh, I've got, um, the next one is Michael Fabricant uh, at the end of April. Um, Michael Fabricant is arguably the funniest uh, politician on Twitter. That's on Wednesday the 30th of April. He's a Conservative MP. If you don't know who he is, that question at the end from Alistair Campbell should give it away. No one can tell whether his hair is real or not. He's got a huge blonde barnet. He wore a massive fake moustache during November, during Prime Minister's Question Time. Check him out on Twitter. He's a very, very funny man. Uh, he's been Conservative MP for Litchfield for many years. Uh, he's been on Have I Got News For You, a real eccentric. Um, so I'm very excited about having him on. Tickets uh, are available on the St James Theatre website, www.stjamestheatre.co.uk. At the end of May, I've got uh, the Lib Dem... Well, he's a, now a Lib Dem uh, prospective parliamentary candidate. This is on Wednesday the 20th, 28th of May. And he's a slightly different guest to the ones that I've had before. His name is Majid Nawaz. He wrote a book called Radical that I'm reading at the moment. And he came to many people's attention when he set up a foundation called the Quilliam Foundation, which, if you saw the documentary on Tommy Robinson leaving the EDL, ultimately was uh, fundamental in him making the effort to sort of leave extremist politics behind. Majid himself uh, was an Islamist, was involved in his Tahrir, and turned his life around, and, uh, well, his book is one of the best books I've ever read in my life. And he is, you know, this is politics on a different scale. This is global politics. This is uh, about the role of Islam in the modern world, um, combating terror, as well as uh, he's a Liberal Democrat parliamentary candidate now. So uh, the domestic scene, he's got, he's blessed with a real... A uh, marvellous brain, uh, a, a very nimble brain. And I saw him on Newsnight the other night with Mehdi Hassan and Mo Ansar, and he just ran rings around them. He really is a, a very gifted uh, and very rare politician, so that will be a very special night. And um, at the end of June, which will be the last one before the Edinburgh Festival, um, will be Wednesday the 25th of June, where my guest will be the former Deputy Speaker of the House of Commons, Sir Alan Hazelhurst. And people talk about rocks of ages and political legends. Uh, Sir Alan is certainly one of those. He's a proper... Uh, old conservative, uh, a good man with a great sense of humour, but he is proper uh, establishment conservative and uh, will, will shed, I think, probably a different light on conservative values than perhaps some of the other conservative guests we've had so far. Um, and, of course, in his role as Deputy Speaker to people like uh, Bessie Boothroyd, um, he'll have some wonderful stories uh, about the history of Parliament as well. So three belting shows coming up. Uh, do come along if you can. Thank you very much for downloading the podcast. If, again, if you enjoy it, please tweet about it and share it on Facebook and tell your mates about it. Um, but thank you. Thank you for downloading it. And, um, yeah, what a show. Uh, what a special night and <laughs> I always get awkward towards the end of these uh, endings because it always feels like I'm talking to someone but I'm just stood in my house um, right I'm going to go I'm going to the chippy um, and I can't get you anything because you will listen to this in the future 
But if you'd like to imagine having chips, I'm going to have chips, battered sausage and uh, curry sauce. So there we are. Ta-ra. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.